Brene said that vulnerability is really not a difficult emotion, a positive or negative emotion. It's the DNA of all emotions. It's what it means to be human. It's what it means to show up and be all in when you can't control the outcome. When you're vulnerable, you're susceptible to getting hurt, but we can't really ever know love without being vulnerable. We can't know courage without being vulnerable. Hello, and welcome to the Emotional Expedition Podcast. I'm Meg Thomas, and if you want to live a more open-hearted, magical life, it all starts with your emotions. This podcast will take you on a journey, helping you to better understand, express, release, and heal your emotions. Let's get exploring. Here we are, episode 11. I still can't believe I get to do this. Thank you for listening and allowing me to go on this journey with you. Today's our last emotion from chapter one, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, and it's a biggie, vulnerability. Understanding this emotion in particular has transformed my life. This chapter was all about the places we go when things are uncertain or too much. Be sure to listen all the way to the end to hear a quote that has changed my life and now gets thrown back in my face by the people who love me, especially my husband. This week, I've been deep down a rabbit hole listening to every podcast I can with Gaber Mate as he's promoting his new book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. I haven't listened to the book yet. That's next on my list but he's been speaking to my soul and why emotions matter, reaffirming to me why I'm doing this podcast in the first place. One thing I heard him say over and over again was that whatever happens in the mind happens in the body. A great example of this was from a study he highlighted in his new book. There was a study of 2,000 women who were followed over the course of 10 years, and those who were unhappily married and didn't express their emotions were four times as likely to die than those who were also unhappily married but did talk about their feelings. I'll just keep saying it over and over again. Our emotions impact our bodies. That's why it's so important that we first understand what it is we're feeling, put the language to it, and then do the work to release it from our bodies rather than stuffing it all down. Gaber Mate went on to say that you can't separate your emotional life from your physiological life. When you look at the question of why women have 70 to 80% of the autoimmune diseases, we are much more likely to get rheumatoid arthritis, MS, lupus, chronic fatigue, and so on. It's because women in our society are taught not to be angry. We're taught to suppress our anger. And of course, diet is also a factor. Women's stress load is a factor, which stress is an emotion. Just look at our response to COVID. In the majority of homes, a disproportionate amount of the workload went to the women. There are many factors involved, but repressing our emotions is definitely at the top of the list. On Mark Hyman's podcast, he and Gaber Mate discussed that the body and the mind cannot be separated. The emotional centers in the brain are connected with the nervous system, the hormonal apparatus, the immune system, the gut, and with the heart. 
whatever happens emotionally will have its manifestation physiologically. When people get emotionally stressed, their hormonal apparatus goes into gear and they secrete stress hormones, cortisol, and adrenaline. We all already know that stress affects the body, but it goes even further than that. I've heard many people share that when they had COVID, they experienced feelings of depression. This was Mark Hyman's experience as well. What happens emotionally affects the immune system and vice versa, meaning that when our immune system is affected, it can have an effect on our emotions like COVID and feelings of depression. It's all connected. We now know that when a pregnant mother experiences stress, it will show up in the baby. It'll show up in the baby's microbiome. So now that we really know it's all connected, the body and the mind, let's dive into vulnerability, the key ingredient for wholeheartedness. And remember that without the shared information and shared language, there can be no change. So let's go and be that change. The first place we're going to start is, of course, with Atlas of the Heart and its definition of vulnerability. It's an emotion we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Those are the three ingredients of vulnerability, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So when is it we feel vulnerable? We feel it when you go in for the first kiss first date after a divorce, being the first one to say I love you, sharing an unpopular opinion, talking about race, trying to get pregnant after miscarriage, talking about your feelings, starting your own business, following your passion, putting your writing, your art, your music out into the world, watching a child leave for college, dropping your child off to kindergarten for the first day apologizing to someone, trying something for the first time, trying yoga, admitting you were wrong, waiting for the doctor to call back, giving and getting feedback, getting back up to bat after striking out, coming out to your friends and family, having to ask for help when you're sick, initiating sex, being turned down, getting laid off, having to lay off people. These are all moments of vulnerability. Talk about really kicking up the uncertainty, the risk, the emotional exposure. As you can see, it's really hard to do life avoiding all moments of vulnerability, but some of us, definitely, that's our MO. We try to avoid vulnerability at all costs. The problem is vulnerability is the ultimate paradox. It is the paradox of all paradoxes. Most of us were raised to believe that being vulnerable is being weak. And we were also raised and told to go be brave. But we can't be brave without vulnerability. So if we're raised to not be vulnerable, but we're also taught to be courageous, it's a paradox. Vulnerability is not weakness. It's our greatest measure of courage. There is no courage without vulnerability. Courage requires the willingness to lean into uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Brene Brown says, in a world where perfectionism, pleasing, and proving are used as armor to protect our ego and our feelings, 
It takes a lot of courage to show up and be all in when we can't control the outcome. It also takes discipline and self-awareness to understand what to share and with whom. Vulnerability is not oversharing. It's sharing with people who have earned the right to hear our stories and our experiences. That last sentence has been the hardest part for me to learn. I'm an open book, basically right from the moment I meet someone. I've had to learn, mostly the hard way, that I can only share with people who have earned the right to hear my stories. I've had many moments when I've shared openly and vulnerably with someone I shouldn't have, and that results in a vulnerability hangover, that feeling of, hmm, I just shared too much. Oh, that wasn't the place I should share. I learned pretty early on that when I would speak from my heart and speak vulnerably, that it would draw people closer to me, that I would feel connected and they would feel connected in most cases. But as I continued to grow my vulnerability muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it becomes, I have learned that it's not always the case. I've learned that when I share openly and vulnerably with someone who cannot share vulnerably back with me, the experience feels one-sided. It feels unsafe. So my new rule is I only share vulnerably with people who can be just as vulnerable as I am. I've been working on this for about a year now, and it's finally getting easier. I can now more easily recognize who and when to share and when I need to stay quiet. The same goes for sharing on social media. I only share things that I've had done some healing around. I don't share things before I am ready to with the world. You should totally watch Brene Brown's HBO special just to see the montage of movie clips of vulnerable moments. It's a roller coaster of vulnerability. One of my favorite clips was of Julia Roberts in Notting Hill saying, don't forget, I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. That's vulnerability. Saying you love someone when you have absolutely no control over how they will respond back to you. There is no courage without vulnerability. We put what's in our hearts out into the world to be seen and for someone to either receive it or completely drop it. To say I love you first is vulnerability. It's courage. You have no idea what the other person's response is going to be. You have just shown your cards and they might say I love you back or they might break up with you. They might say thank you. They may not be at that place yet. And we also need to remember that it's vulnerable for them in those moments too. Brene said that vulnerability is really not a difficult emotion, a positive or negative emotion. It's the DNA of all emotions. It's what it means to be human. It's what it means to show up and be all in when you can't control the outcome. When you're vulnerable, you're susceptible to getting hurt but we can't really ever know love without being vulnerable. We can't know courage without being vulnerable. I love the work of Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey that he mapped out in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Every single book, every Pixar movie, every Disney movie follows the arc of the hero's journey. It's everywhere and it's in everything. According to Campbell, there's three main stages, which each consist of several steps. 
The first stage or the first act is the departure, separation. Then it's followed by the initiation and the return. In act one, the departure, the separation, we get the lay of the land. We understand what the rules are of the universe, wherever the movie's taking place. And at the end of act one is always an inciting event where something bad happens. And then act two, all of act two is the protagonist trying to solve a problem without really ever being vulnerable. They will try everything that doesn't include vulnerability. And the end of act two is finally the ultimate act of vulnerability. In act three, the return is where the wisdom gained from being vulnerable is brought back to the group of people, to the village, people are saved, whatever the story is. I love Harry Potter. So let's see how this plays out in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Act one, which is the departure stage. This consists of five parts. The call to adventure, where Harry has the opportunity to leave his terrible muggle family, the Dursleys, to go to Hogwarts school. Then there's the refusal of the call, when Harry tells Hagrid he must have made a mistake. The third part is either a supernatural aid or advice from a mentor. Hagrid helps Harry begin his journey. And then there's the crossing of the threshold. Harry literally crosses the barrier to platform nine and three quarters. And then the belly of the whale, the final separation of the hero from his known world. Act two is the initiation. Act two is always the longest act. This is known as the messy middle, where Harry will do everything he can to avoid vulnerability until he finally overcomes his fears and acts courageously. And we all know we can't be brave without also being vulnerable. It starts with the path of trials. Harry's faced with a series of challenges that test the strength of his character and his ability. This is the majority of the movie. The sorting hat, learning magic, making friends, Professor Quirrell's antics, Fluffy the three-headed dog, the sorcerer's stone, and the chessboard. Then it's the temptation. Some of his temptations he must face are to join Slytherin House, flying, pursuing the mirror, and then the ultimate boon, which is the defeating of Voldemort and the protection of the Sorcerer's Stone and the House Cup victory. And then Act 3, usually the shortest of the three acts, is the return, where Harry will go and share the wisdom gained by being vulnerable. It starts with the refusal of the return. Harry has to go back to his muggle home for the summer, but he doesn't want to leave Hogwarts. Then it's the magic flight. Harry takes the Hogwarts Express back. Then crossing the return threshold, Harry returns to platform nine and three quarters and sees the Dursleys, which signals his return to normal life. And it ends with the master of two worlds. After completing his first year in the wizarding world, Harry is changed and he becomes a hero, which in turn changes his muggle world as well. Think about how much time Harry spends trying to avoid vulnerability. How much time and effort do you spend running from vulnerability? How are you protecting yourself in ways that ensure that you never have to be vulnerable? For me, some of my most vulnerable moments have come during my fertility journey. This last assisted cycle really did a number on me. I had done all the things, dramatically changed my diet, 
took care of my body, did my best to manage stress as I prepared for an embryo transfer. We transferred two beautiful, healthy embryos. I thought for sure this was the time. It was going to work. It had to work. Because I've had failed transfers in the past, I tried my best to not get my hopes up too high out of the fear that it would break my heart more if I really let myself believe that it was going to work. But honestly, no matter how much we try to protect ourselves from the pain, it doesn't protect us from the pain. It's still going to hurt. The pain is heartbreaking. On the day I got my blood test results, I asked for my favorite nurse to be the one to call me and deliver the news, good or bad. And she did in the kindest, gentlest way possible. You are not pregnant. My heart broke into a million pieces, having heard this phrase over and over and over again. Why is it so hard for me to get pregnant? This is what my body was made to do. Why is my path and so many others this challenging? I was broken for a long time, feeling the grief, feeling the pain, the sadness, and the disappointment. I feel this pain over and over every single month but especially on the cycles that have been assisted by fertility treatments. It's as if the harder I try, the bigger the heartbreak when it doesn't work. The grief and the pain is so much after each cycle that I'm not sure I'll ever be able to get back up and try again. And some months I don't. Many months I can't. In those months, I allow myself to feel it all to not suppress it by just trying again immediately. That works for some, but not me. I need to really fully feel it and take my time as long as I need to heal. And then as if I'm carrying a basket around with me, I pick up little tiny bits of courage and I put them all in my basket until my basket is full of courage. And then and only then do I take all of that courage out and try once more. It's the ultimate act of vulnerability to try again, to get up after we've fallen, to get up after we have been down in the mud. To try again is to put myself back into the arena of uncertainty, to risk having my heart broken again, to not have any control over the outcome. This story is not finished for me yet. I've not experienced a happy ending. I'm not a mother yet. But when I do finally become a mother, whatever that looks like for me, it will have been worth the risk of vulnerability. That's something I know for sure. The reason I share my fertility journey vulnerably and publicly is because this journey can feel incredibly isolating. It feels as if you're all alone, and that's what shame loves. Shame loves secrecy, and there's so much shame in the fertility world. I personally have felt less alone when I've heard other stories, like Gabrielle Union and her struggles with infertility, miscarriages, and surrogacy. When we can see ourselves in the stories happening around us, we feel connection, we feel seen, we feel less alone. And none of those stories can happen without the willingness, without the courage to be vulnerable. And that's exactly what Brene talks about in her TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, which has been viewed over 59 million times. 
She says that in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen, really seen. That's vulnerability. People who have a strong sense of love and belonging, they believe that they're worthy of love and belonging. And people who struggle for it are always wondering if they're good enough. This is something I've struggled with my whole life and am continuing to cultivate a relationship with, believing that I am good enough. And the one thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we are not worthy of connection. People who embody this worthiness, or as Brene calls it, wholeheartedness, have four things in common. They have courage, compassion, connection, and vulnerability. The first one, courage. Courage is uh, the Latin word cur means heart. Its original definition was to tell the story with your whole heart, the courage to be imperfect. The second thing they have is compassion. They have compassion to be kind to themselves first and then to others because we can't practice compassion with others if we can't treat ourselves kindly. The third thing they all have is they have connection, which is a result of authenticity. They were willing to let go of who they thought they should be in order to be who they really are. And the fourth thing is vulnerability. They fully embrace vulnerability. They believe that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. The willingness to say I love you first, to do something when there are no guarantees. And just like any uncomfortable emotion, we find ways to numb our vulnerabilities. We numb with addictions, spending, medications, food, Netflix, you name it. The problem is you cannot selectively numb your emotions. I'm going to say it again because this is so important. You cannot selectively numb your emotions. You can't numb the bad emotions like vulnerability, grief, and shame without also numbing the good, joy, gratitude, and happiness. Other ways that we try to avoid vulnerability is we try to make everything that is uncertain, certain. We perfect, we practice perfection. This one is definitely still a struggle for me. And creating this podcast has really asked me to overcome any illusion I have of perfectionism. And Brene goes on to share that we pass this perfection onto our children. They are hardwired for struggle when they get here. Our job is not to say, look at her, she's perfect. Our job is not to keep her perfect so she makes the tennis team and then goes to Yale. Our job is to say you are imperfect and you're wired for struggle and you are just worthy of love and belonging, so much love and belonging. We all are. We're all imperfect. We all struggle and we're all still worthy of love and belonging. To let ourselves be deeply seen, vulnerable, seen to love with our whole hearts, even though there is no guarantee, to practice gratitude and joy, to feel this vulnerable means I'm alive, to believe that we are enough. On Oprah's Super Soul Sunday, Brene said that being vulnerable feels dangerous, and I think it feels scary, and I think it's terrifying, but I don't think it's as dangerous, scary, or terrifying as getting to the end of our lives and wondering what if I would have shown up? We can't allow ourselves to get to the end of our lives and to have not been vulnerable. Just think of all we would miss out on. 
It's about being willing to be both brave and afraid at the same time, to be scared and courageous. There is so much I would have missed out on if I wasn't brave and vulnerable. One of my favorite stories and favorite experiences would have never happened. It would have been one of those moments I would have completely missed out on if I wasn't brave and vulnerable. So a few years ago, my husband, who is an avid bass fisherman, he fishes professional tournaments and just is an incredible angler. We decided we were going to travel the country and he was going to do this fishing circuit all up the East Coast. And it was going to take us an entire fishing season. And I was just in it for the adventure. So my role was to help navigate, take care of all the food, take care of, you know, getting him everywhere he needed to go. We only had one vehicle, so I would have to bring him to the launch, you know, at four in the morning, just so I could have a vehicle to kind of go adventuring during the day. Well, our first stop was Florida, and we had our beloved dog Hunter with us. He didn't go to all the tournaments, but he went to a handful. So we drove from upstate New York to Florida, and at that first tournament, I started to notice these handful of professional photographers that were around the tournament. And the photography became such a huge part of the experience. So after I would drop Ian off, I would check all day long. I would check my phone to check the website and see if there were any updated photos. So it was a part of like the experience. We're just trying to find these photos of Ian out there on the water and see how everybody was doing. And through that first tournament, it was probably three or four days long, I started to see who was my favorite of the photographers. And I kept seeing the name over and over again, and it was this guy, Garrick. And I did a little bit of Facebook stalking. I was like, hmm, let me see who this guy, Garrick, is. And turns out, through the power of social media, I found out that he grew up in a town not far from where Ian and I grew up. So I made a plan. On this next tournament, which was going to be in Alabama, I wasn't going to have Hunter with us. And so we drove back home. So we drove from Florida back home. Ian had to work for a week or so. And then we turned around and went back to Alabama. That's pretty much how we did the entire season. So we go back home, I get all my camera gear, and I set out on a mission. I'm like, okay, I thought it was going to be enough for me just to be here and be on this adventure with Ian. But now I'm like, I want to be out there on the water too. And this is my ticket. So on the first day of the Alabama tournament, it's, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning, I figure out which photographer is Garrick. And I muster up all the courage that I have and I go up to him. I introduce myself to him, tell him, you know, that I love his work. And I said, I want to come out here with you. And he looked at me like I was absolutely nuts. I tell him I have my own photography gear. I'm completely insured. Like, just get me out on the water with you. I want to see it from that perspective. And he was like, no. Absolutely not. Heck no, I am not bringing you out there, this woman who I'm just meeting for the first time, right? 
So that's what vulnerability is, right? Is putting ourselves out with risk of rejection. That someone, something is going to say, no, it's not going to go the way we want, right? But there is this part of me that is not willing to take no as an answer, at least not right away. It's not always a no. I've come to learn this for myself, and there's been so many things I would have missed out on if I didn't ask the question and if I didn't ask a second time. So later that day, we get to the weigh-in when every all the guys, all the anglers are in, they're weighing in on stage. I see Garrick. I've got my own camera out there. I'm taking pictures of Ian as he's on stage, and I go back up to him, and I say, all right, did you change your mind yet? Because I'm going to ask you every single day until the end of the season until you take me out there. And he looks at me and he just laughs and he thinks about it for a moment and he says, all right, fine, you can come with me tomorrow. It's going to be freezing, dress really warm, you know, be here at four o'clock. That was my ticket. That was my yes. My being brave and courageous introduced us to Garrick and his family, who we absolutely love and adore and are still great friends with to this day. So I went out that night and we had to find warm clothes for me. The only store nearby was a Walmart and it's Alabama. So there's really not warm clothes, but I found tights that I wore like under leggings, under a pair of jeans, I found, you know, like work gloves that had to pretend to be gloves. I found some rubber boots that did not fit me, but I needed something that I could wear. So <laughs> we go out and I'm, I mean, I'm just so excited We're we head out and it's gorgeous. The sun is rising. It is freezing, but it, it is that beautiful, misty, foggy kind of morning we have this amazing day. We're out chasing. Usually Garrick is assigned to like the first, you know, first place, second place, third place guys. So we're out there chasing him. We run into Ian at one point. I get to take pictures of him out there, which was so cool to see him in his element on the water. But then I have to pee. And I soon understood why it was a liability to have me out there versus not somebody else. So when we're chasing the first place guy, we have to go when they go. There is no warning to us. Whenever that fisherman moves, we have to chase them. Like that's the job, right? To get the pictures of the guys who are leading the tournament. So we're in a place where we're close to the shore and I could get off to go pee. And <laughs> so they pull the boat over, the driver pulls the boat over. I get off the boat and Garrick hands me a monopod, which is like a tripod that just looks like a stick. So he hands me this monopod and I'm like, what's this for? And he says, that's your snake stick. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what, what do you mean snake stick? He's like, well, if you're going to go in the woods there, you got to watch out for snakes. So he hands me the monopod. I'm now terrified and walking into the woods to pee as quickly as I can. And he's yelling from the boat, don't forget we're in Alabama. So the snakes aren't just on the ground. They're also in the trees hanging. It was the most terrifying P 
of my entire life. So I got back on the boat and then I promised myself that for the rest of the season, if he would take me out, that I was not going to drink anything all day long just so I didn't have to have that experience. So we get back. It was an incredible, incredible thing. Throughout the rest of the season, every single tournament, Garrick would try and take me out for one or two days. And we just built this bond. We built this friendship that I am so beyond grateful for. And on one of our very last tournaments, I think it was the second to last tournament, we were in Tennessee. It was super hot. And Garrick takes me out with him and we lost the guy in first place. So as we're chasing him, you know, in the morning, the commotion of everyone launching, we lose the guy in first place. We spent two hours driving over 70 miles an hour trying to chase these fishermen looking for the guy, one guy, the needle in the haystack that we're looking for. And we finally find him. And I realize I'm not okay. I am completely seasick at this point. And so bass boats are not that big. And we're out there, you know, filming the guy in first place. So I find myself puking out the back of the boat Garrick is trying to minimize what's happening with me while he's documenting this guy who's fishing for hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was so embarrassing. It was so vulnerable, right? And there was no way to get me back to the dock. So I just had to stick it out through the rest of the day. That was a memory that I would have liked to not have experienced. However, I'm so grateful for this friendship that we now have. And it was all because I was willing to be brave and vulnerable and willing to feel that sense of rejection. Now, back to Brene's work. So Brene says there are four myths of vulnerability. The first, which every single person knows, is vulnerability is weakness. This is a myth. How you feel is not as important as getting stuff done. That's what our culture says. In a culture where we are afraid that we're not enough, it's hard to believe that vulnerability is courage. So vulnerability is not weakness. It's actually a superpower. The second myth is I don't do vulnerability, right? Those people that say, oh, I don't do vulnerability. Well, to be human is to be vulnerable. You can't opt out of vulnerability. The third myth is Vulnerability is letting it all hang out. That would be like live tweeting a bikini wax. That's not vulnerability. We have to share only with those who have a right to hear our stories. And the fourth myth is that we can go at it alone. We can't. And when we're vulnerable, it gives others around us the opportunity to be vulnerable too. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. Courage begets courage. It's a practice. And just like any change, if you start trying to be vulnerable, there's going to be pushback from the people around you. People prefer that we don't change and that we just continue to act in the ways that they expect us to. But I'm here to tell you it's worth it. Vulnerability is worth it. This is at the heart of how we live a more courageous, more wholehearted life. In the book Bittersweet by Susan Cain, which has truly become one of my most favorite books, she highlights a study done at the Columbia Business School. The school gathered a collection of students and measured their blood, D-H-E-A-S, a hormone that 
helps protect against depression by suppressing the effects of the stress hormone, such as cortisol. Then they ask the students to speak to an audience about their dream jobs. So the students get up on the stage and they talk to this audience about what their dreams are. Unbeknownst to the students, the audience was arranged for some of the talks to be greeted with smiles and nods, and other people experienced the audience to have frowns and head shaking. After the talks, the students were asked how they were feeling. Those who experienced the receptive audience were in better moods, makes total sense, right, than the ones who thought they bombed. Then they were also asked to make collages, which they were later rated by professional artists for creativity. The students who faced disapproving audience audiences created better collages than the ones who were smiled upon. And those who received negative audience feedback and had low levels of the DHEAs, the students who were both emotionally vulnerable and suffered rejection from the audience, made the best collages of all. Yes, that's correct. So what does this mean? It means that even when we face rejection from being emotionally vulnerable, good things can come out of it, like our creativity. So the creativity was better in the people who felt that they had been emotionally vulnerable and were rejected. Isn't that fascinating? Your homework, your digging deeper homework this week, your extra resource is to watch Brene Brown's TED Talk on vulnerability. There is a reason 59 million people have watched this. So that's your homework. And for a bonus, to read her book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Changes the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. And the quote that I want to leave you with was first highlighted for me, in Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. And it is called The Man in the Arena. And this is from Teddy Roosevelt's Citizen in a Republic speech. Here it is, The Man in the Arena. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Now that is one of my most favorite quotes we talk about it in our home all the time. We ask each other, my husband will be like, hey, are you in the arena? Are you in the cheap seats, right? Are we living our lives by being brave and courageous, which means by being vulnerable? And for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, I want to be there. I want to be in the arena. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. 
If you're ready to dive deeper into your own emotional expedition, I invite you to join me in an intimate eight-week virtual book study of Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart. And in case you're not quite ready to join the study, I wanted to share a free offering that I often suggest to people as a little bit of a compass to get them started on their emotional journey, the meditation to alleviate stress. You can find the meditation and the book study linked below. I'm so grateful you're here. Thank you for listening. And if you loved this episode, will you please share it with a friend or two? Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, so you're sure to never miss a single episode. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's Voices Amplified.